0: Welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. I'm Tyler Green. This week, we spotlight one of the few major new historical exhibitions at an American art museum this fall. The Eamon Carter Museum's Texas Made Modern, The Art of Everett Spruce. I haven't seen the exhibition, but I know Spruce's work, I've read the catalog, and were it not for the pandemic's impact on normalcy, I'm pretty darn sure that it would have been the surprise hit of the season, a real artist's show. My first guest is Spruce curator Shirley Reese-Hughes. Her exhibition includes nearly 50 works Spruce made between 1929 and 1977. Spruce was an Arkansas-born painter who lived and worked in Dallas. Across his career, he applied lessons learned from early Renaissance painting to early modernism to the Texas landscape. He exhibited widely and was collected by institutions across the United States, including those in San Francisco, Philadelphia, and New York. While Spruce was a prominent and well-collected early American modernist, as the American art world began to narrowly focus on the coasts in the 1960s and afterward, Spruce's work and career were substantially neglected. Fortunately, Spruce will be in Fort Worth through November 1st. The terrific exhibition catalog was published by Texas A&M University Press. Amazon and IndieBound offer it for $35. We'll have a link on manpodcast.com. This week's planned second segment was Derailed by the West Coast Wildfires, So we'll revisit my conversation with Barry X. Ball, whose work is at the Nasher Sculpture Center through January 3rd, 2021. But first, Shirley Reese Hughes, after the break. The Nasher Sculpture Center is ready to welcome you back. Kick off the fall season with a stroll through the Nasher Garden and visit today to see Barry X. Ball remaking sculpture the first U.S. museum survey of works that combine 3D scanning technologies with traditional sculpture techniques. Whether online or in person, find new ways to enhance your visit, from time ticketing, weekly music performances, to expanded digital content on the Nasher app. Learn more at NasherSculptureCenter.org. Since the outbreak of COVID-19, thousands of people around the globe have taken on challenges from Getty and other museums to recreate famous works of art at home. Astonishing in their creativity, wit, and ingenuity, these photographs remind us of the power of art to unite us and bring joy during troubled times. The new book, Off the Walls, Inspired Recreations of Iconic Artworks, celebrates these imaginative recreations, bringing highlights from the Getty Museum Challenge together in one whimsical, irresistible volume. Getty Publications will donate all profits from the sale of this book to the charity Artist Relief. Get your copy at shop.getty. Exploring the trajectory of abstract art made during the 20th century, Small Abstractions at Sheldon Museum of Art highlights a great strength of the museum's holdings and explores moments when color, line, geometry, and gesture, not figural form, serve as the subject of painting. Often associated with large canvases and dynamic brushwork, abstract art in America, as seen in this installation, took on many forms including instances where artists chose deliberately to work on a smaller scale. The exhibition includes work by synchronists Stanton MacDonald-Wright and Morgan Russell, members of the American Abstract Artists such as Burgoyne Diller, Alice Trumbull Mason, Ad Reinhart, and Joseph Albers, as well as Pearl Fine and Nicholas Caron, known for their participation in Abstract Expressionism's The Club. Small Abstractions highlights the rhythms and geometries that this group of artists employed to formulate their own interpretation Of nonfigural or abstract art. For more information on small abstractions, visit sheldonartmuseum.org. And we're back. Shirley Reese Hughes, welcome to the Modern Art Notes Podcast.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: How the heck did Everett Spruce's work come together with Edna Ferber's work in 1952? And why is that kind of perfect?
1: Spruce had a fascinating history. And I think at that moment, when those two came together, he was considered, he was nationally known as the artist from Texas, the painter from Texas. So he had this name recognition. And I think that the New York Times, as they were doing their review of the book, the book Edna Ferber's Giant, you know, this larger than life story about Texas, it was sort of like, okay, who paints Texas in a way that's not necessarily descriptive but evocative of the land, evocative of West Texas in particular where of course Ferber's story is set. So Spruce had had so much acclaim at that moment, you know, by by mid-century he was well known through reviews, he was represented in New York City galleries. And so I think it was kind of, may not seem like it today, but kind of a natural melding of of two recognized modern day interpreters of the state at that moment.
0: Spruce was born in 1908. And as you mentioned, he becomes by by the middle of the 20th century, you know, the go-to Texas painter, the go-to Texas modernist. Could you give us the the, the quick sketch of how Spruce became Spruce between from kind of his earlier early career up until that moment of his greatest prominence in, in the mid-1950s?
1: Well, being raised in Arkansas, I mean, he was, as I kind of overview in the book, you know, raised on farms and, and really had that sort of intimate relationship with nature. And it was by a fortunate coincidence that Olin Travis was traveling through Arkansas, sketching the mountains, and his partner, Catherine Hale Travis, and they had started really the first professional art school in Dallas, Dallas Art Institute. And just on the strength, they, through family members, were able to meet and Spruce provided them with sketches and they were like, you know, on the strength of his drawings alone, gave him a scholarship to Dallas. And I think that really was a launching point for him because at DAI, he had the opportunity to study not only with Travis, but Thomas Stell who had uh, much more experience with modernism and had studied in Italy and was able to, you know, communicate all these new ideas to Spruce and his generation. And I think what's also fortunate for Spruce was, you know, as the Great Depression hits, he was able to find a job and he was working for, at the time, what would become the Dallas Museum of Art. It was Dallas, I think, for your public gallery, or probably getting that name wrong, but it was a gallery at the time. And so, having that income, being able to support himself, allowed him to do what he wanted. And I think what's kind of fascinating about Spruce is he was very much very independent, you know, never really followed trends, never really fell into, you know, like feeling like, you know, you think about the 1920s when he's studying in Dallas and the most popular style is Impressionism, you know, thanks to Julian Onderdonk and all of his blue bonnet pictures. And, you know, so many artists were following in that mode. And I think Spruce was always very independent about his vision. He looked at modernist artists, was aware of the Stieglitz circle as, you know, they had come to prominence. When you think about them being exhibited and getting more acclaim by the early 1930s. And he just kept attuned to what he believed in, which was really the experience of being in nature. And I think because he was so grounded in what he knew he wanted to paint, he was able to really kind of evolve his style. And he Came to prominence, you know. When we think about, we were talking about how did he get to the 1950s recognition as being, you know, such a well-known, renowned Texas painter was starting in, you know, March 1932 in Art Digest. There's, you know, kind of the famous story of a, a critic coming down and seeing Everett Spruce's work and Jerry Bywaters and Otis Dozier, and and they earned that moniker, the Dallas Nine, at that moment because it was, you know, these nine young Dallas painters that were painting, you know, the Texas scenery, but weren't afraid to delve into modernist styles or acknowledge that modernist style. And in that article, which was really the first time a group of painters working in Texas got national recognition, within that article, it's Spruce's painting that's reproduced. It's now lost. We can't, I'm sure some, maybe somebody has it in an attic somewhere, but so he really stood out amongst his peers. And I think what was fortunate for Spruce on the practical end too, is that a he had that job that he was able to support himself and his family through the Great Depression, and he, so thereby, you know, being able to paint what he wanted, and then you know moving on to 1940, he moves down to Austin, he becomes a professor down there, he has even more free time to paint, and he he also starting in 1937 with Alma Reed, he gets she had come down and seen the Texas Centennial the exhibition at the Dallas Museum of Fine Arts when it was the nineteen thirty six Texas Centennial and she saw his work and she reached out to him and said, Hey, I'd like to represent you at Delphic Studios. She created her own studios. And what's interesting was she was actually on her way down to see the unveiling of Jose Orozco's Guadalajara murals. And she so she stopped in Dallas on the way and that's when she saw Spruce's work. And so really starting then with his representation in New York City and then he gets a great review in the New York Times you know and she even writes him a letter saying you know this is really unusual for such a young artist to receive this kind of acclaim so he thereafter you know was represented by other galleries in New York City so he, he kept up that representation he kept up that presence there all the while being able to paint what he loved and what he enjoyed and kept evolving his style because he kept attuned to what was happening in the in the modern art world. I mean he kept attuned to to what was happening as far as modernist painting and, and so he was willing to evolve his style.
0: Yeah, he has a he has a, a brief Abex period even. So he goes from being well known within the art world in the mid nineteen fifties Two decades of neglect. Obviously, there's um, abundant and well chronicled coastal myopia that, that that is always a factor in these things. But is there any other reason knowledge of him anyway fell off the map?
1: I really think that it was due to the fact of the rise of abstract expressionism, and I think that his figurative painting just fell out of favor, and. I think that Spruce was also really not really not good at self promotion I mean it's kind of fascinating when you look at his history that really it was kind of attention coming to him you know he's he he was difficult because he didn't really like to talk about his artwork he didn't keep journals, even if you you know delve into the letters the correspondence between his dealers in New York City asking him to, you know, please write a description. Would you please describe your artwork? And he just, he did not like to do that. I mean, I think Spruce was very much of a doer. I think he was, you know, always working, you know, as far as whatever occupation he had, but then he was always trying to paint. I mean, so I think what happened is, and part of this is kind of fascinating history that he tells, when you think about the 1930s, he would get a letter from, say, Juliana Force at the Whitney saying, you know, we're doing a survey of American art and we would like you to submit artwork. And, you know, at that time it was a matter of you created up your paintings, you sent them up there. It wasn't, you know, here's my slides. And so in some ways I think there's, there, there was almost perhaps more of a democratic process to these American surveys at that time and then i think with the 50s and the ascendancy of abstract expressionism and then the pop art world that new york became such a focus you know in terms of uh, american art that he kind of just fell out of that realm he was no longer a part of new york city where we know you know so much attention gets paid to these artists and you know there's more monographs or more catalogs or you know more research and efforts to keep them alive and keep them well-known.
0: You identify a watercolor from the late 1920s as kind of a a font from which much of the next 20, 25 years worth of Spruce's work comes. It's called Mulberry River, Arkansas. It's in the Dallas Museum of Arts Collection. We'll have an image on manpodcast.com. What does the watercolor show and what does it portend?
1: I really think that it's A reflection of home so it's you know and by the way you know he would continue in the summers even though he after he moved to Dallas to study at the DAI he returned home during the summers so that was painted about 1927 so he's there at home in the summer and he's painting that watercolor and it's almost to me you see this these recurring motifs uh, motifs in his work and I think that that's one of them it becomes the shape that's recreated in other paintings from west texas mesa a painting he did in 1938 the mesa in the background almost looks like the the shape of that that rocky cliff hillside but in reverse i think in some ways that it's almost like this sense of freedom. You know, he loved the poet William Butler Yeats, and you think about that, the poem that he wrote, Lake Isle of Innisfree, I think, and where it's Yeats, you know, he's there he is an artist, you know, poet working in London, but he's going back to his fondest memories of his childhood, to this place, this lake, where he feels a sense of freedom, and he feels a sense of creative ingenuity. And I think for Bruce, he had this almost like symbolism, and that that form, that recreate you know that he recreates in some ways, it's almost like an anchor to him. And it's almost too like that sense of like an island, a place of freedom, a place of creative individuality and identity that I think he associated with and it came to his mind. Um, and he, he would re- recreate it in different forms over the course of his career.
0: His paintings are full of these upward thrusting mesas and prominent rock formations. And Spruce uses them both as references, I think, to early Italian Renaissance painters. We'll probably get to that in a minute. But also as kind of a way of Texas and Western america Elements of of European modernism. There's a great painting in the show of a roof with pigeons on it, which is a giant winking at the cubist grid. There's a painting of a tortoise as viewed more or less from above, you know, with with flattening for the picture plane, and the tortoise's shell is built of triangles, which reads like a a giant kind of Audubon Humboldtian science taxonomy, winking joke at landscape construction, um, landscape painting construction. Was Spruce interested in this kind of range of art historical references?
1: Absolutely. Yeah. And you brought it up. I think that you see that in his 1930s work, where he was really looking at Andrea Mantegna and Giovanni Bellini. And he, in an interview he did in 1976, he referenced both of both of them. And he said, you know, in a way, because of, you know, the limestone landscapes that you see in their paintings, that he made a connection there as far as the landscape. But I also think that he was very much trying to communicate what he saw as within nature as having a higher spiritual power and having something that should be deeply appreciated. And so I think looking at Mantegna and looking at the way he arranged his paintings, but looking at, you know, if you look at Mantegna, what's fascinating is he's, he's not painting soft meadows, you know, and you're not seeing that in Spruce's paintings either. You know, you're not seeing, you think of Frank Gray and those, you know, the horizon line and the, you know, the soft meadows and the the rolling hills and, and you don't see that in Spruce's work. And I think, he was, you know, those rock formations, and there's this recurrence of rock formations that, you know, are, are rather kind of uncanny. They they're not very natural. That keep popping up, and they keep popping up at the horizon line of his of his pictures, and they're almost like, you know, often there's like a single tree up there, and it. Oh,
0: we're going to talk about single trees.
1: <laughs> okay. Okay. <laughs> Uh, but I was going to say almost like a you know a Christian symbolism as a cross or or something you know to be revered and 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 worshipped. So, but what I was going to say was he absolutely did keep up with what was happening, as far as all the progression. You know he he understood what was happening, modernism wise. I mean he looked at cubism. I had a former student of his call me after the book had gone to press and say, oh, yeah, he would talk about Rothko all the time. He would talk about Rothko and his mixtures of colors. So I think that was what was kind of fascinating about him is he was very much open to what was happening in those experiments that were happening in New York City at the time and, you know, moving into the mid-century.
0: Well, speaking of of Mantegna and and Bellini and the Italians, You make a a fascinating connection in the book between uh, Thoreau's Walden, uh, a specific Montaigne painting, The Agony in the Garden at the National Gallery in London, and a specific spruce painting. And as soon as you put it all together, I couldn't stop seeing it and thinking about it. So what is kind of that three-part multi-century journey?
1: (laughs) Well... (laughs) I think that as far as you know we know from what the remnants of Spruce's library Thoreau I think provided that model for him looking at you know his classic work of Walden that immersion that sort of being in the moment in experiencing that nature you had also mentioned you know we were talking about West Texas and why it was so important to him and I think he loved going out there and feeling immersed in it So I think that Thoreau, you know, and Whitman, you know, the poets that he read, that he kept their books, I think that they were in some ways those models to him of how to go out and to experience nature. And then I think for Montaigne, I think it was that he was looking at those paintings, you know, he was, studying the way, you know, even from the basics of, you know, as an art student, kind of looking at the way these Italian Renaissance masters were organizing their pictures. And I think that he saw connections just even from a basic landscape perspective of, okay, you go out to West Texas and you see, you know, stone and limestone and Mesa and, you know, these very single trees, kind of almost dead, you know, and and of course, we're also talking about the fact that he's painting, you know, these pictures during the 1930s at the height of the drought and the height of the severity of what was happening in terms of the climate. So I think that he looked at also, I think what Mantegna represented was this kind of looking at the landscape, even though Spruce doesn't incorporate figures in there but looking and thinking about the landscape in a sort of spiritual context you know we know Spruce was tough because he didn't really talk about religion and he didn't was a really practicing as far as his adult children have told me but i think that there was just an inherent spirituality that he saw in nature and that's connected to Thoreau and that's connected to Whitman and then Mantegna almost provided sort of a model of something very classic and very, you know, a painting that was meant to be contemplated and looked at deeply and meditated about. And I think that's what Spruce wanted people to do. I think he he really wanted people to look deeply into his pictures and think about nature.
0: And then you mentioned that in Spruce's The Hawk from 1939 from the Museum of Modern Art, which is in the show, but which is arriving a bit late, hashtag pandemic, there is a hawk soaring above the 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 exact same part of the painting that Mantegna puts it that there's almost a conscious joining an Americanization of not quite composition but close.
1: <laughs> yeah, I think that the there was in the Mantegna painting when you see the hawk and the isolated tree, you know that that was a metaphor that was indicative of Christ's fate, and I think if you look at spruce's pictures you know some the tones shift and change and i think the hawk the painting from the moma there is more of a uplifting spirit to it and i think that that was his intention in that particular work it was kind of to think about the hawk as as soaring and this harbinger of spring and 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 the hawk as you mentioned though is a harbinger in the Montaigne painting, but on the side of, of looking at Christ's fate versus, I think, in the, the modern art museum's work, it's more of the direct relation to Thoreau.
0: Or or that the river that's running through the painting is going to dry up.
1: Possibly. That's potential, too, because, you know, exactly, because of what they were, you know, what they were living in in that moment with with the drought in Texas.
0: You mentioned single trees. I, I am not sure there are, I mean, I'm sure there are, I just can't think of them. I mean, maybe George Innes from the 19th century. But in, in the American 20th century tradition, I'm, I, I'm not sure I can immediately think of anybody who made such a big deal over individual trees as as Spruce does. I mean, they're in practically every painting of the show. Let's start with a, a 1950 painting called, called Broken Tree. You mentioned that Spruce was looking hard at and thinking about European modernism broken tree is basically a Mondrian deconstruction of a tree only painted with red, white, and blue. Do we think that's where he's looking there?
1: I think he was open to all that was happening at that moment. I think that there's cubist elements to that. I think that he, as you mentioned, you know, starting with the single tree— And I think in some ways there's different meanings to the trees. One is, and his daughter, Alice Bruce Merriweather, who was instrumental in helping me and providing me with scrapbooks of her father and talking about what her father would talk about because he didn't like to talk about his art, but what he did like to talk about with his children was nature and always talking about trees as if they had a character and a personality. So what I think he does is he's open to, hey, I'm going to experiment with what Mondrian's doing. He, you know, he even there's some touches of surrealism. If you look back at the earlier work, Arkansas Landscape, you know, there's there's a feeling of an uncanny surrealist painting. But I think what he's doing is he's taking that subject that meant so much to him, the single tree. And experimenting with it. And I think by like Broken Tree from 1950, what it's almost like, okay, you still have that horizon line, you're not, you know, you're still, you know, you're grounded in Texas, you've got the horizon line, but it's almost like this patchwork of colors can be an allusion to water and, you know, all of nature. And I think that there's all these motifs of nature that just keep cropping up. They're somewhat hidden in certain places in later paintings, but you can just see them coming through.
0: When and how did Spruce discover the Big Bend region, and how was it important to him?
1: You know he you know what's fascinating is if you go back and you look at the Dallas morning newspapers, Big Bend was advertised as this almost like it's the last frontier, and what was happening was in nineteen thirty three under Franklin Roosevelt's New Deal program. Is because the attention that had been given to the park, I think, or Big Ben, you know, before it became a, a national park, kind of like, oh, there's all these geological formations that you know they didn't understand at the time, that it was almost like a place to to be studied, and so once the Civilian Corps went in there in 1933 and they created an infrastructure, they created a road structure. Then, two years later, 1935, Spruce starts going there. And I think he was fascinated by, because I think he had a fascination with history, and I think he was fascinated by the fact that, you know, you look at Big Ben, and it's that unusual combination of mountain and water and desert, you know, right there in a, in a landscape area. And I think that that was fascinating to him, because I think there's these references to time in his pictures, you know, these allusions to archaeology. And we know that he he was a voracious reader and we know that he was fascinated by archaeology and he would read about that and that sense of time and history. And he read a lot of, of of history as well. So I think that, you know, because Big Bend is so, you know, I forget where it dates back to, you know, millions of years ago, what what the the changes in the earth that the tectonic shifts that created the the landscape the way it is. So I think in part that was it. He also, and honestly, you know, and his his daughter said this, is he really had no interest in the piney woods. I think part of that was probably growing up in Arkansas. West Texas was so new, you know, in appearance. And a lot of and I talk about this a little bit, you know, there was a history of Texas artists from Frank Ray taking artists on journeys west going to West Texas to study, to look at, to, you know, paint or draw the Western landscape that had been, you know, kind of was like this fertile ground for discovery. So I think that they thought it was new and and enticing in that way.
0: You also write about how during this period the Texans were intent, at least white Texans, were intent on arguing that their state was Western and not Southern, an argument that was small-R romantic, that imagined Texas as forward-moving rather than as backwards and historically motivated like the rest of the South, and that white Anglo-Saxonized a lot of Texas's history to boot. What was Spruce's relationship to that ideology?
1: I know that... He was not part of the circle that was advancing that narrative. As far as when you think of sort of Jerry Bywaters and Alexander Hogue, and they were writing articles that were really promoting that agenda for you know local newspapers. Or, and I think that he was definitely hearing it. I think that he was definitely within that. It was in that milieu. I don't know that Spruce necessarily subscribed to it in a way that was as direct as say Hogue or Bywaters were doing but he was also part of working for the Dallas Museum of Fine Arts at the time you know he was also part of organizing that 1936 centennial celebration. So it was definitely part of the conversation because that was part of it for the the 100-year anniversary. It was like we're going to think about Texas as, you know, it's the southwest. It's not the south, you know, and kind of that idea of, you know, still the association with, you know, cowboys and the last heroic settlers of of America. So I think there was that he was Part of the milieu, I don't know that he necessarily was advancing it in a way, in a very direct way.
0: I want to close with the Marsden Hartley line of potential influence. When I look at Spruce, I see a whole lot of Hartley, both in terms of his willing to push me, pull you objects up to and away from the picture plane, his sometimes outlining of of shapes and forms with the color black, with his willingness to treat everything, rocks, trees, whatever, as malleable. What do we know about Spruce and Hartley and whether Spruce was aware of, looking at, riffing on?
1: We know that Spruce, honestly, even though he was rooted in Dallas, he wasn't going to New York City, but being... Working at the Dallas Museum of Art at the time, there were exhibitions coming in. Now, I didn't see anything where I, I tried to look at the history of the exhibitions at the DMA, and I didn't really find anything where Hartley was on view at that moment. What I think is kind of fascinating is it's Hartley, who actually kind of was saw Spruce's work in a private collector's home, and after kind of falling out with, well, I don't know if it was a falling out, I really don't know what happened with the relationship with Spruce and Alma Reed, I just know he had the one show there, that it was Hartley who recommended Spruce to Hudson Walker, who was representing Hartley at the time. I think that, you know, it's it's a really good question whether Spruce had seen Hartley's work. I think that Spruce very much was worked in that expressionist mode, though. But what's interesting about Spruce is where, you know, you think about Hartley and kind of that heaviness that he maintained, you know, throughout his career, that sort of outline forms, you know, even into his later works. When you look at the late works of Spruce, I mean, you know, suddenly, you know, it's almost veering towards more abstract expression. It's very loose handling of fresh work, very, you know, much freer, much more experimental Really, having left behind those thirties where the you know picture plane is you know pushing up, and I think that also at that moment, partly in that whole generation, kind of thinking about the the canvas as a flat two dimensional plane and and versus you know the traditional Renaissance illusionism, so I think that was part of it. It was part of just the era. But I think that Spruce, when you look to his really late work, I mean he really shifts way beyond that mode.
0: Well, what made me think of Hartley, other than a bunch of other kind of obvious similarities, is Spruce's fantastic 1945 painting of Driftwood, which seems impossible without Hartley's great 1939-40 painting of Driftwood, which is in St. Louis. I took a look and couldn't find any reason to associate the two paintings at all. You know, I couldn't begin to make an argument for Spruce having been aware of the Hartley painting. But Boy, does it seem like there ought to be.
1: <laughs> well, you know, I mean, I it's it's always possible. I I know that Spruce just he wasn't traveling around. He was not traveling around in the forties. We know that much. The thirties and forties. I don't think he got actually got to New York City until probably the early like either late forties or early nineteen fifties. So, I mean, he was definitely reading catalogs. He was definitely looking at you know, what was happening in the world. And so, you know, it's definitely potential he could have seen Hartley's version of Driftwood. I think that they both, you know, they both were trying to find those symbols of place in their work. And I think so they had that almost philosophical connection between them. And so I think there's definitely a resonance there between um, the two artists you mentioned
0: spruce's abex phase which is less abexy than it is abex informed probably i mean it's 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 not a, it, it's more x than it is ab right i see gorky i see asorio i see maybe even hartley there too for that matter what do we know about spruce and the attention he was paying to abex and whether he was ultimately happy with his turn in that direction
1: well we do know that he was aware he was looking at Pollock and he was looking at Rothko and he was looking at that group. What we also know is that he actually said, you know, that he was uncomfortable with pure abstraction. And if you take a work from the, from the show, like West Texas from 1948 and you see that abstract expressionist influence on that particular work, but there's still, there's still a reference to trees. There's a reference to the ground. And I think that he even said when he had attempted pure abstraction, he would ultimately go back and put something figurative in the painting. So I think that he felt really uncomfortable almost with that belief of kind of delving into his own mind and conjuring his images from his subconscious and as conscious, I think that he, I think he just was very, um, he viewed art as very experiential and that it was some place he'd been. It had been something he'd seen. It'd be something he experienced in a way that he witnessed it, but then, you know, had a feeling about it that he had to put that on the canvas. So I think what you're, you're absolutely right. It's more abstract expressionist influence than anything, but I think what it did do was free up his Brushwork and perhaps allowed for a little more spontaneity in the way that he painted.
0: Finally, the show, at least to me, suggests that spruce is a really important link between Hartley and mid-century American painting and David Bates. Have you and David Bates ever talked about spruce?
1: You know, we did not talk about spruce, but one thing I find kind of interesting, I was talking to someone who has a gallery over in Dallas, and she said to me, you know, there are so many artists that I know of that are excited about this show that are coming over to see it. And it's kind of fascinating. I don't recall in all my conversations with David, him mentioning, he did mention the circle. Do you
0: mean the Fort Worth Circle or a different circle? Oh, the Dallas Circle.
1: Yeah. David Baines mentioned to me, he talked about when he was a young painter, when he was studying art, that Otis Dozier was very welcoming to young art students and would invite them to his home and have conversations. And so I think definitely David was, David Bates was aware of Spruce's work and probably has an admiration for it. And there, there are similarities there. And you think about too, like David's never been one to want to go paint the, you know, piney East piney woods of, of Texas. He's, you know, drawn more to the coast, drawn more to, you know, either. West Texas or the coastline, but...
0: Or the bayou, for that matter, I mean...
1: Oh, absolutely.
0: But also the kind of the way, you know, one of the things that as I as I flip through the catalog, and of course I'm at the 2020 disadvantage of not having seen the show, but even when Spruce paints figures, which we didn't really otherwise talk about, Spruce's way of painting figures and where and how he places them in the composition, and organizes things around and behind them is super Batesian.
1: Yeah, I think you're right.
0: Shirley Reese-Hughes, thanks so much.
1: Oh, thank you for having me. This has been really a pleasure.
0: This fall, Hammer Museum in Los Angeles presents Made in LA 2020, A Version, in partnership with the Huntington Library, Art Museum, and Botanical Gardens. The fifth edition of the biennial, which highlights artists working throughout greater Los Angeles, features new installations, videos, films, sculptures, performances, and paintings, many commissioned specifically for Made in L.A. The exhibition will show the 30 artists at both institutions, two versions that make up the whole. Made in L.A. 2020, a version, on view this fall at the Hammer and the Huntington. Find details and sign up for updates at hammer.ucla.edu and at huntington.org. Welcome back. Next up, sculptor Barry X. Ball joins me to discuss his work on the occasion of a career-spanning survey at the Nasher Sculpture Center in Dallas. That exhibition, Barry X. Ball Remaking Sculpture, has recently been extended through January 3, 2021. It was curated by Jed Morse. Ball's sculptures are typically created out of rare stones with the assistance of 3D scanning and printing technology and CNC milling machines. His work typically addresses, and often updates, mostly European major work from sculpture's history, such as Michelangelo's Rondinini Pieta or Medardo Rosso's. This is Ball's first survey exhibition in the United States. The fine exhibition catalog was published by the Nasher. Barry X. Ball, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. It's a pleasure to be here with you. The catalog to the exhibition at the Nasher opens not with the usual title page or with a table of contents, but with a pointed series of 10 or 11 pictures of a sculpture now in the Louvre called Sleeping Hermaphrodite, and then of your work. It's, It's a pointed and clever series of pictures that refers not just to the work in the Louvre, but but to your work. So let's start with Sleeping Hermaphrodite. What about it attracted your interest? It's probably
2: the most famous composite artwork in the history of art. Uh, It's been worked on by various artists for over two millennia. Originally, the hermaphrodite figure was bronze, Greek, second century BC, then copied by the Romans, second century AD, lost discovered near the baths of Diocletian at the time of Scipione Borghese, and he hired the young house genius, 19-year-old John Lorenzo Bernini to bed it, which changed the whole intent, meaning of the work. And then other artists, like one we know is David Laric, did figure restorations. It's a It's a mosaic, uh, multiple pieces of stone, worked on for two millennia, and I had this idea to do a 21st century consolidation of that work. And uh, it was really the first of my, quote, masterpiece series, the works that are directly inspired by specific historical works. And uh, it was, you know, a magical start to that series of works, being able to work in the Musée du Louvre when it was closed, in the great Salle de Cariatie, the Greek and Roman hall there, with this work that I'd learned about when I was a student at Pomona College. It was just a fantastic experience from the scanning all the way through its multi-year creation process. Literally, I think if you look at the dates there, we're over 10 years in the creation of the translucent pink Iranian onyx version that we have at the Nasher Sculpture Center.
0: Yeah, the first the first two pictures show the three-dimensional scanning process you mentioned, and then the next couple pictures are of you in what looks like a stone market selecting that onyx. Yeah,
2: in Carrara, Italy, the, which is the stone shopping center of the world for everything, not just white, famous Bianco, Carrara Marmo, it's uh, you want the best Brazilian stone, Bolivian, Vietnamese, Egyptian, American, Portuguese, you go to Carrara, Italy, and that's me with a potential block of incredible Uh, material, you don't see blocks like that. You can go back to Carrara for 10 years and not find a piece as perfect as that one that I'm measuring there, which ultimately became the sculpture stone. So why pink onyx for this sculpture? Well, I I wanted to emphasize that fleshiness. It's also translucent in the extreme. Uh, I'm often trying to dematerialize that very stony obdurate material that I'm working with, you know, Bernini, like I said, made this piece sexier. The original hermaphrodites were on slabs. It's a pretty, uh, you know, sexy subject to begin with. This transsexual figure, which is, seems so au courant, uh, you know, the the myth uh, hermaphroditus. It's actually a love story where they were united in one body. But by putting it on a bed, it, it takes it another level. A state of postcoital arousal. There's this feeling of somebody waking up or they going to sleep. It just adds a kind of poignancy to the whole thing being on a bed. And then I, uh, I had the advantage of all the digital palette my armamentarian to apply to it to, I think, take it to another level of sensuality.
0: One of the things that you you do here in this work and that you do with lots of work is address works from the past via a kind of conscious doubling. What about a direct address interests you most? Well, first of all, I scanned
2: Michelangelo's Pieta rondinini and my version my pietas in the show to go toe-to-toe with the greats is kind of in general my aim to me uh my definition of art is the greatest thing humans can do and and to go up against the best artists that have ever lived i mean uh, is really a challenge when i moved to new york four years ago i thought i was Uh, Going to the Olympics, I was going up against (laughs) the great contemporary artists of my time who had all been drawn to New York and, uh, you know, kind of extended to historical artists. Uh, It it just uh, seems like I would like to hold on to all the power of those, those historical works and take them to a new place and make them mine. And so often in the display of my sculptures, I've had the opportunity to show them side by side, mano a mano, with the historical original. One advantage of that is that people often tell me, I get it, it's not a copy. It's, there is something new that you've done here uh, when you can see it next to a historical work. Uh, There's that beautiful mirroring across time. My sculptures are almost always, by the way, mirror images uh, in their orientation uh, to the historical originals. The sleeping hermaphrodite lays the opposite
0: way, in the one in the in the Louvre, right. Of course, there's a, a long art historical tradition of that, especially in painting, where a, a painter or or a printmaker would reverse the pose or presentation borrowed from a previous master, um, both as a way of disguising a little bit, but also as a way of kind of opening up the reference and making it easier, or I don't know, more generative for 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 the subsequent artist to find something new. You mentioned Michelangelo's uh, Pieta Rondanini, which is a late-in-life sculpture that Michelangelo failed to complete himself, but unlike other works he failed to complete, survived his, his studio, uh, I guess mostly because it left it before, before his death. What about addressing that particular Michelangelo interested you, and how did you, and I guess why did you change the face or add to the face of one of the two figures?
2: Well, uh, yeah, I could talk about this work for an hour. Uh, it's it's an extraordinary piece. Hard to believe that uh, it was ignored and forgotten. It was in the Rondinini family courtyard in Rome. There are pictures of the children, the Rondinini kids, playing with their toy cars on the sculpture. It was considered such a nothing up into the 20th century was dirty, was outside in the courtyard. Uh, They stuck it on a Roman base. Like a lot of Romans, they had ancient artifacts sitting around inappropriately, so it doesn't even fit on the base that it was on. (laughs) I'll try to keep this short, but, but there's so many connections to everything else going on in this show. One of the connections that's interesting is that my great friend and supporter Laura Mattioli, who through her foundation in Switzerland is actually the owner of my my pietà, she has and her family has maybe the greatest collection of Italian modernism. And Laura is the founder of the Center for Italian Modern Art in New York, which has had a series of extraordinary exhibitions that kind of fed into my work too. But it turns out that Laura's father, who compiled the collection, Uh, was very involved in a campaign by the city of Milano post-World War II to purchase the Pietaro Nannini, bring it to Milano as kind of a symbol of the resurgence of the town. Uh, from the war. And uh, Milano was 75% destroyed. Really, uh, we don't even think about that. We think of Nuremberg and other towns. It was really in a bad place. And And I think it was a great idea. They brought this sculpture up there. They were able to buy it at that time for not so much money again, because it wasn't considered so amazing. It's a sculpture now that is beloved of artists. Because it's an old man going down to his death, Wonder if he was aware how close he was to death. Uh, he was apparently carving on the sculpture. Michelangelo Buonarroti was uh, six days before he died at age 88, An extraordinarily long life for somebody at that time in the 16th century. And he uh, was almost inventing a new form of sculpture on the fly, a la prima, which was not the way he typically worked. There's this vision of Michelangelo uh, hacking away just on the fly at blocks of stone he, he was very innovative in his methods of enlarging from models to get them out of various blocks of stone but in this one you see evidence of the prior incarnation of the sculpture and with the massive powerful forms that we know from the Capella Sistina, the, the Sistine Chapel in Rome, the, the typical Michelangelesque muscularity is been erased and, and Michelangelo is striving for a kind of gothic, attenuated, mannerist spirituality with weightless forms. And you see the evidence of the, the there's this vestigial arm from the, prior composition, you you see all kinds of different stone treatments, almost a catalog of stone working techniques from pure raw stone to rough chisel work, to finer, to polish going on. It's, It's frozen creativity at the end of this old man's life him searching for something new. He created mannerisms almost single-handedly in sculpture with this work. Michelangelo was devoted to the Virgin and was very spiritual at the end of his life. He apparently uh, donated uh, most of his work on the architectural work on St. Peter's, and he was effectively carving his own funeral monument. And I morphed a portrait of Michelangelo into this my sculpture instead of the roughed out face of Christ uh, is in Michelangelo's version. Uh, I actually scanned in Castello-Swarcesco, where the Pietà Rondanini is, a portrait of Michelangelo by uh, his uh, student and follower uh, Daniele da Volterra. Uh, the infamous Daniele da Volterra, the guy who later painted the fig leaves on the figures in the Sistine Chapel. But he did this portrait, the best one we have. There are copies of it in bronze in the Louvre, etc. And I took that 3D scan and kind of changed it stylistically to fit the Pietà the, my pieta and and morphed it in there because, you know, like I said, it, this is uh, Michelangelo making his own funerary monument. And I, it affected a couple other changes, too. You know, one important one is the late great art historian out of the University of Pennsylvania, Leo Steinberg, advanced the theory that unlike all the other pietas, this is not a mother holding the body of her dead son This is a son supporting his mother in her grief, carrying her on his back. And to emphasize that, I took away the rock that the Virgin was standing on and drooped her foot. And if you look at the side views of my sculpture, which we purposely emphasized by the positioning at the National Sculpture Center so that you would confront the side as you came into the room, uh, you'll see this, this beautiful arc almost Broncosi-esque, which is some Broncosi kind of rears his head in a few of my works in the show, especially his use of pedestals in conjunction with his sculptures. So I was able to emphasize that that long curve. Uh, it's an unfamiliar view. We see the reproductions of the Pieta Rondonini from the front only. And uh, again, I'm thinking of my sculptures as sculptures in the round. you know. So there are some reasons that I affected the changes I did.
0: What is the finish on the lower section of the sculpture? And what is this finish on the upper section of the sculpture? And why did you choose for them to be different? There's a variety of surface finishes, not just for
2: decorative reasons, but actually conceptually linked to the work. So I should talk about the pedestal, which is integrated with this sculpture. Uh, it, it was based on that ill-fitting Roman grave Stella. They actually uh, took my scan data in Milano, used it to create a whole new display for the Pieta Rondanini. I had no way of knowing that when I was scanning in there that they would act were actually thinking of creating this Museo Pietà Rondanini where they show just it in a much better position than it was before and they debated again about what to do with the pedestal they had tried to get rid of that damn pedestal when they moved the sculpture to Milano and all the designs they came up with at that time right after World War 2 were rejected so it had been shown on this Stella, for 60, 70 years, and I like the link of it with the work. It's not on it now. They have this whole anti-seismic base, and they actually used my scan data to create a copy, a rough copy, did all this seismic testing. I, I love all this because I'm super grateful to these institutions for allowing me to scan, and the fact that they were able to use my data, which is something I always do. I give them copies of the scan data for study, restoration, and in this case, creating a whole new installation for the Michelangelo. And I took that Graveschella, though, and put it back on it, unlike what you see now in Milano, and, uh, and changed the proportions of the pedestal. I turned it into a trapezoidal solid so it would link better with this tall obelisk-like composition of the pedestal plus my sculpture. And and to me, it was appropriate. It's uh, On the grave still are portraits of a man and woman. It was a funerary monument for a couple. And to me, I like this link of the ancient world and the Renaissance, modern world above. You have a man and a woman, a mother and a, her child. And then I wanted to go with my translucent stone to affect a surface on the entire sculpture that gave it a kind of soft focus, what Leonardo da Vinci would call sfumato, a smokiness. I I did a lot of testing with the step over, we call it in robot world, but the, the, the spacing between the little flutes caused by the robot milling process to be able to see the forms of the sculpture, but make them somewhat indistinct. And so it has a kind of ridged, horizontal ribbed surface, which also reminds me of patterning on Egyptian sculpture. It's actually a spiral from the ground to the 10-foot top of the sculpture above, a continuous milled spiral. And then I have schematized polish areas which more or less conform to Michelangelo's, although I don't want to have anything that smacks of uh, hand blending. I mean, um, it fits with my approach that I would make a map of his polish and institute it mechanically. You know, so it's just kind of in keeping with my working methods. So I think that I love the passages on my sculpture where you see Michelangelo's chisel marks with my marks superimposed on top of them. You see my horizontal flutes with vertical big plowed ridges by his pointed chisel. So it's like we're working together to make this work in all of my masterpieces. I feel like I want to respect this artist's work and take it to a new place again holding on to everything that they put into it and adding layers to it adding you know enough of my touches usually thousands of subtle changes that cumulatively give the piece a buzz a a new feeling like i said when you put mine next to the michelangelo there's no mistaking that it's a work of contemporary art i hope
0: Addressing the way sculpture was made and the effects sculptors could get in the past with the means uh, and tools tools of the present, which is always fun, there are five or six sculptures in the show in which you address the great early modern sculptor, Medardo Rosso, sculptures made out of uh, white Vietnamese marble, Mexican onyx, and more. What about Rosso? interested you, and why did you choose the materials you chose for your address of him?
2: I became familiar with his work because, of, again, of my friendship with Laura Mattioli, who's the founder, again, of the Center for Italian Modern Art. Her second show there was a beautiful, comprehensive exhibition of Medardo Rosso's work. Drawings, sculptures, photographs. He's an incredibly innovative, overlooked artist. Again, a favorite of contemporary artists. Uh, they had an exhibition at Tadeus Ropak in Paris, uh, Peter Freeman in New York. Uh, I saw Tony Craig talking about his work. Uh, it's this uh, discovery of an artist who was ahead of Broncuzzi ahead of Rodin, Cast his own bronzes, very rare for that to happen. Uh, started playing with the materials of casting, took his own photographs, started playing with the chemical of photography. His drawings are exquisite, uh, made small scale works. Part of the reason he's not considered a great. There's a lesson for contemporary artists you want to be remembered. Think about doing a monumental sculpture every once in a while, otherwise, you get dismissed wrongly so as the the maker of those small things. But that's part of the reason why we know more about Rodin than we do about uh, Rosso, even though Rosso knew Rodin and was ahead of him. Anyway, I helped Laura install the show. I designed the pedestals, worked on the lighting, which is another one of my fixations. And through that whole process, you know, fell in love with this work. And then when the show started being talked about at the Nasher, which was a long time ago, I, if you're picking up on things here. The, the process of making my work and generating the exhibitions that result from it are all long term. I think we started talking about the show at the Nasher in 2012. So eight, eight years because Jed Morse wanted to have new work. And it just a a typical life cycle for my sculptures, if if I went direct, is five years from the time that I 3D scan a historical work through all the digital modeling, through the acquisition and cutting of the stone, through the robot milling. I mean, I mentioned this to this point, but the sleeping hermaphrodite, for example, has 10,000 hours of handwork. That's the equivalent of five person years. They just take a long time to make and when i went to the national for the first time i saw that they also have a nice collection of madardo rosso's work and so jed you know and i talked about it and i said well i'm you know already working on this project uh, my madardo rosso project and uh, it would be great for me to have my work here to go up against the ones in the Nasher's collections, and you know, it ultimately happened. Jed beautifully selects work from the Nasher's collection. I think it's his general practice with every exhibition there, to mirror, contrast with, emphasize the artist of the moment. And one of the things he did here was to put out almost all of their Medardo and one thing he did that was beautiful was uh, to borrow uh, one version of the Jewish Boy a sculpture from Howard Roshawski and put it in a case next to the Nasher's version of that sculpture. Medardo himself played a lot with, quote, copies of his own work, doubling, experimenting with different versions.
0: different materials, yeah.
2: Yeah, different materials, even the same material with a different approach. There's doubling throughout my show in two-headed, two figures, the obvious doubling of the historical originals, the et cetera, the, the hermaphrodite doubling of sex, uh, et cetera. And so uh, I ultimately scanned 39 Rosso's in all the major collections of Italy because Laura Mattioli introduced me to Danila Marsura, who is actually the heir to Madonna Rosso and runs the Archivio, the archive of Mark Medardo Rosso. And I scanned in the Museo Medardo Rosso in Barzio, at Capesero, in Venice, at uh, the gallery uh, GAM, Galleria Arte Moderna in Milano, etc. Pretty much a catalog resume of Medardo's work. And it's my intention to make versions of all of those, sometimes multiple versions by flipping the classic sculptural divide additive to reductive. I mean, you've has got Rodin is usually used as the prime example of an additive artist building up uh, to create his forms and Michelangelo, a reductive artist cutting away. And I'm cutting away from stone blocks to achieve my work and rosso was a builder opera you know as far as i know he didn't carve anything from stone that flip goes on uh, again i'm using translucent stones many of rosso's forms are on the verge of unrecognizability would and i love the ones that get closest to that his famous to me at least baby at the breast is a pure abstract form in bronze His is Three millimeters one-eighth inch thick bronze and mine in the show at the nasher is in ultra translucent uh, golden honeycomb calcite and they and we put it in front of the windows so it's backlit and you can see it kind of glowing to me i, I wanted to push them one step farther towards abstraction
0: you know i think i succeeded here The one other uh, great Rosso show that comes to mind is Sharon Hecker's 2016 show at the Pulitzer Arts Foundation in St. Louis. Hecker's book on Rosso is, her recent book on Rosso is really the go-to English language text on, on the artist. Barry X. Ball, thanks very much. You're welcome. It was a pleasure. That's all for this week's show. The Modern Art Notes podcast is edited by Wilson Butterworth.